Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mookie Harrington, and joined, as always, by Mr. Brandon Howard. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Are you ready to talk W business? And Actually, I know the... The, the question's probably on everyone's mind. We were just talking off air before we started recording, but did you get the Warpath figure? I sure did. I was so excited. <laughs> I will tweet out a uh, uh, a picture of the Warpath figure that yeah. has been autographed, something like, Stay Awesome, Warpath. Thanks, Mookie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was thrilled to get it. My wife asked me, what is a primal Warpath? And oh. uh, I, I could not express to her. That's, in, that's in, a long conversation. It sure is. <laughs> Those of you Western New York uh, pros, uh, you would agree oh. with me. Uh, All of you Western New York uh, wrestling, independent wrestling fans listening out there, you know exactly what we're talking about. But uh, but I, I worked a show. If you've ever seen, like, I don't know, like how many years ago, I mean, like five years ago or so, there was a video that went viral about Warpath, how he, like, this is this, like, ultimate warrior type wrestler, like, hunted down the Taliban and whatnot. And I think it was on Tosh.0 and everything. But anyway, that guy is an independent wrestling promoter and wrestler, and I worked one of his shows last Saturday. And he has like personal action figures on sale, and uh, Mookie got wind of this and demanded a, an action figure immediately. So I, I complied and I, and I shipped it off to him, you know, right away. It was a, a very good use of my all the money I make doing artisanal WrestleNomics uh, is is well spent on pacer fees and Warpath figurines, mm-hmm. uh, and and also right in front of me right here I have a stack of. Um, you know, like trading card packs somebody sent me for, I think it was my birthday. They sent me like five different ones, and some of them were WWF from the 80s. Some of them were Little Shop of Horror. Some of them were Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. So just as I look, I have a picture here. It says, there she, here she comes. It's uh, Tito Santana uh, punching somebody right in the face. Card number what? 28. Uh, I'll have to tweet that out as well. Uh, but anyhow... So, throughout the show, if I get bored, that's what I'm going to be uh, referencing is all these trading cards on my desk. But one thing that wasn't boring and made me very happy is George Berrios, CFO, Chief Strategy Officer of WWE, showed up at Needham Emerging Technology Conference, or Needham Inc., etc., yesterday and gave his speech that he's given for probably five years now, I think is how long he's been doing this Needham conference. And, and Needham, uh, by the way, is the home of Laura Martin. Who, Laura you, Martin. If, you, if you've ever listened to a, a W you know, quarterly conference call, she's always asking Vince questions. 
So it, it was an interesting talk, and it sounded like both you and I listened to the whole thing. Um, yeah. What's really striking when I listen to it, and uh, I don't know if a lot of you know the the journalists out there are catching on to this, but WWE has really switched the the tone and the tenure of their messaging around what the network is and what the goal of the network is. Uh, and I thought this presentation really kind of caps encapsulated the entire change that we've seen with that, where the the network is no longer something that we're trying to aspire all fans to go to, but rather it's now for the, quote, core of the core fans. Yeah. I, I guess we're, we're seeing more in, since the launch that it, it feels to me almost like an admission that, all right, we know we've got some really hardcore wrestling fans out there, and what we're going to try to do is just appeal to them and, and get as much money as we can out of them. Although I, I know they wouldn't say, you know, well, we don't, we're not just trying to, like what Laura Martin said on the last conference call, we're, we're not just, you know, saying forget about the TAM, the total available market. We're not, we're not just saying we're not going to try to create new WWE fans anymore, but uh, they're trying to, I don't know. They're trying to make it more of a, a, a niche thing. And I think that's the, the embracing that's different to me because in the old days they used to always insist we are the Netflix of wrestling or we're, or we're just yeah. like Netflix was even one but, of the taglines. But better. But Netflix better, but yeah. Better. And so when you start abandoning the whole idea that maybe this isn't a general entertainment service the way that they categorize Netflix but rather a niche entertainment service the way you know NFL Network or MLB or a – a specific streaming service dedicated to a certain niche is going to be. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that... didn't, didn't Barrios even say uh, we're never going to be at where Netflix is because they're general entertainment. Exactly. And so it's just like yeah. you're admitting that you're you're in a different league, which to me then starts saying, well, why do you price yourself like them? Uh, because yeah. I, I always will go back to I think you're leaving a lot of money on the table if you have a small addressable market, but that you've proven has a lot of ability to pay lots of money. Um, yeah. But what's funny is so he, his new speech now is we've pivoted from a live event business to a traditional media business invested heavily for this next phase of growth that we're currently undergoing, which is a direct-to-consumer global digital media business, which you know is just like every buzzword you can throw in there at once. Uh, but it, it says a lot about where he always puts things. And I, I think sometimes it's easy to criticize George because he's a business guy who works for a company that happens to produce wrestling content. In no way is he a wrestling fan or is he a wrestling um, – It really in, involved in the day-to-day -day ideas around wrestling more than just it's the medium by which he, he happens to be operating today. And so it's very funny to me when, when you hear him talk that it's really clear that he's excited to work for a media company. And I think sometimes he works as hard as he can to not really talk about things beyond the fact that they have a big fan base and they can, quote, engage them a lot. Yeah, I think, like I said last time, it, it really feels to me like this is the promoter. George Barrios is the promoter, and Vince is the booker. I mean, obviously, in, in actuality, Vince has the final say and, and all that. But it, it does feel like this is the guy who's going to handle the business, and he's going to you know, put all the deals together, make it, make sure everything works, make sure all the nuts and bolts of this company works. And then th this is the mad scientist over here who's going to put on our circus. Almost like the facilities manager or something, you know. Um, when they talked about the network, it was interesting. He, he said, you know, we got a lot, large library. We are continuing to add to it. We own 100% of the rights to it. It's clear that that 100% of the rights thing is a sticking point for them. And that goes back to why they don't put any of that WWE Studios content on there, 
which again I think would actually broaden the appeal of something like the network. As limited as that library would be, but right. Uh, so, so like, how would that work out if they if they wanted to put some of the WWE Studios movies on on that on the network, they would have to reach a deal with the other people who own that content. I think so. And then additionally, yeah. there could be deals that are actually related to the um, the rights when that content was produced. So, you know, the way that that writers might have a back end credit or a production company might have a back end credit to get royalties downstream. And I think that's mm -hmm. the biggest thing is that they hate to deal with royalties. And, you know, even in the latest developments in the Bagwell case, which was over royalties here, was basically right. that some of the um, some of the the specific charges against wwe were thrown out for basically wwe had challenged them in the bagwell uh scott levy raven case about the royalties saying you never and then those people never basically countered the arguments so they got thrown out those pieces got thrown out but the core argument of whether or not do they owe royalties uh was not thrown out and then the co second core argument of is it possible to calculate royalties was also not thrown out um because wwe basically said it's impossible and and the judge was like, no, you could certainly just figure out how often something's viewed, how much money you made in a quarter, assign five percent of the gross profit or whatever to it, and then split it up. Among They've got people. an entire analytics department that's studying all this stuff. And that was what George wanted to talk about was how much analytics they yeah. had, how they had all these, you know, fancy cart metrics and how someone drew up a really fancy acquisition model on a whiteboard and somebody else walked by and just looked at it and said, ah, I shouldn't work here anymore. Yeah, it, I, I, I didn't I didn't hear that, but I saw you, you tweet that. Yeah. Th this was as it ended, right? It was one of the later the, one of his last stories. Yeah, it was pretty funny where he was just joking about how basically how, how technological the company has become over the last few years uh, in terms of their analytics department and just how much they've invested. And it will just be a real question to see, you know, if they hit that two million mark and then they keep speeding to two and a half million. I will give all the credit to the fact that it's coming from the analytics department being able to, to micro-target yeah. and create content. Customized marketing. Yeah. If, if you know, we see it really stall out as they try to zoom towards $2 million here, this could be another example of spending uh, and throwing good money after bad where – not that I don't think it's a good idea, but where you know maybe a go-it-alone strategy is just not right because perhaps – just like a cable television service, you don't pay for every channel and care for every channel. The best way is you bundle it with something else, and then when you're selling that service, you know all those channels you don't watch, somebody else is hopefully watching, and so it evens out in the end, and you can get more money in the, the bulk, and then instead of having five companies with analytics departments, maybe you'll have a better investment in one. But WWE loves to go it alone, so uh, we'll, oh, yeah. it'll be a long time before I think they'll give in, before they uh, throw in the towel, and they still say they, they want to hit $3 million to $4 million with this network. Right. So do you see any – so you're saying you think it would probably be a better idea for W to get involved with uh, like basically a skinny bundle, right? Either a skinny bundle or a very um, niche-driven bundle. So you know some other kind of oh, okay. extreme sports or extreme programming or something that yeah. – you know uh, uh, something else radical to use some more 90s terminology um, <laughs> that you know they can combine with. I used to always say if you could uh, – find me um all the old usa shows on demand just by themselves i would watch that that uh you know bundle but someday someday um when when he's talking so much about different things it's funny because he shoots through this presentation as fast as he can and occasionally he'll kind of um throw in a nugget here or there like when he said the place where our content is viewed most on traditional tv for example is in india our highest yeah. average weekly viewership is in india 
And I think everyone immediately connects that to the gender story. And I think that's a fallacy. I don't think Jinder Mahal's push is simply because they get a lot of viewership in India. That said, I don't think it hurts. I, I see it more as, as a, you know, a confluence of events that is driven to this place. And yeah, I do think it, they're hoping it will help them in that marketplace. And they're definitely pushing that marketplace because they just launched a, you know, kind of a wraparound show in a local language there. But at the same time, I don't think just because they will sign a big deal with another country somewhere that, you know, necessarily the Chinese big star is going to go on television that same week. If they had their act together, it would. But I just can't believe this company can always have its act together when it comes to that kind of long term plans. I, like as far as Jinder Mahal goes, like I mean, how long has Jinder Mahal been in this feud with Randy Orton to where you would you know, theoretically be a difference maker to India? I, I It's only been it's been less than a month. Right. I, I would think whatever data he's referencing would be over a span beyond the most recent month and may not even include the most recent month. You know? Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to this question I've said before, which is uh, I don't know how reliable any kind of metrics are for television viewing outside of, of right. the U S where the media market's incredibly developed. I think right. P uh, people give Nielsen enough grief as it is. Yeah, exactly. So I always take it with a grain of salt that not that said, obviously there's so many homes, there's so many viewers, there's so many people in India. I'm not surprised, but I'm sure there's also a lot of other shows that are on Indian television that have enormous followings and, and, and viewership. And that doesn't make it instantly the biggest thing on earth either. So, no, uh, but I mean, it would bury his argument there is it's pointing to look at all the, yeah, it's whatever the case, there's a ton of people there and we've got more people in India watching it than even we have on traditional TV watching it in our home country. True. But we also know that it's making a fragment of, of this of right. revenue right now. And so, right. Well, it's all speculative, you know, he's yeah. just like India is going to be big someday. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting when he was talking about, you know, what are the biggest relationships for WWE? He said the network, NBCU, the India TV deal, the UK TV deal, and YouTube. And and he was really saying YouTube slots in at number five or number six. Nobody asking about, you know, what was the impact of restricted viewing? What was the impact of kind of uh, advertisers fleeing due to, to uh, questionable ads being run or anything like that? So I still think there's a big question mark there about, you know, whether AVOD viewing is being going to continue to go up in revenue or down in revenue like you had pointed out we were at a point where we thought we might actually see a decrease in avod hours consumed for a while until this q1 number came out and it jumped up again yeah but that that was q1 so i mean q1 being what it is january to march you know that's traditionally the busiest period for wwe so i i can i can say well maybe it's gonna be that if it if it, if it continues to go up in q2 well then maybe something else is going on and it still is a, a growing area and and, um, the, and it speaks a lot to why they run these tournaments where they do and what they do. You know, why do they run a UK tournament? Why do they run a women's tournament? Because we know that those are actually hurting the bottom line when it comes to the cost of producing all of this. Um, and you could argue it's probably not paying back in new subscribers all that much. Maybe it's paying back in reten retention of subscribers. But there's something to be said for the idea that you want to run them during the latter half of the year when viewership is going to start to wane and, and subscriptions might begin to uh, leave. And so it's good as a way for a, an acquisition and a retention model. And of course, cohort retention was one of uh, George's new, along with super serve uh, uh, phrases that he loved very much. I love as, far, as far as timing, if you ever just feel that you need to uh, beat world of sport to the punch, then you got to do it right away. Yeah, well, that's true. Too. <laughs> you know, I, and I think, I think they definitely are, you know, 
you do see them make some of these moves like India where they didn't, you know, I think it was a little bit of a thumb in their face that, you know, Impact was trying to make a run there and TNA was trying to get a, a leg hold or a foothold or a, uh, for them, a calf hold or a knee hold, um, shin hold. Let's see what other parts could there be? You're the wrestler. Hammerlock. There we go. A hammerlock. Um, uh, something that yet no one has taken Vince up on the offer. Uh, exactly. Zaffalo calling you out. You got it. Uh, but I love it when George addresses things that are really out of his wheelhouse, like the wellness policy. And yeah. So, uh, so, so I, I missed this. How did this come up? Somebody asked the question. I mean, we couldn't hear the questions. No, you either. couldn't. If anybody out there listens to the audio, you, know, you can't. You couldn't really hear. You could hear some muffled something or other, but it was just Barrios who had a microphone. And then, and then, and George just responds, "Well, if you go on the corporate site, you can pull down our wellness program and." For us, it is a wellness program. It's 360 mm-hmm. degrees. It's all about the overall health of the talent. And we have this huge focus on that, including uh, there's violations and if there's performance enhancing. We tend to act pretty aggressively on that as well. But we tend to come at it from the, the point of view of a wellness perspective. So yeah. we invest a lot. And, you know, it's easy to be super cynical. And so this is tremendous business speak. I, I often like listen to people talk this way. And I'm like, how, where, where did they go? Like, was this taught in a college class or something that I didn't take? Like, I think it's osmosis. You, you, really. you, know, <laughs> yeah. you, you learn it over time. Um, yeah. But I, I was impressed with, you know, people were talking about uh, Tanahashi and how he's got this bicep tear and he's basically going to take a month off and then he's going to be back at it. And New Japan this year has already had some pretty horrific injuries um, between Shibata yeah. and, is and it N- Naito. Oh, Hamna, sorry. Hamna, yeah. Hamna. And it's just like they were even talking about in the New Observer, they're talking about how they were setting up a, a medical council to review wrestlers and, and their health. And it's funny because the Japanese style has always had this kind of idea that say it is more hard hitting in the ring, but then they kind of give the guys longer breaks between the tours. So maybe it's better, maybe it's not. Yeah, and I think another thing that I don't always hear talks about is that when you you look at results for Japanese shows, they're running you know tons of six man tags, eight man tags, and whatever. So most people aren't working that many singles matches over the course of a year. You have to compare that to WWE, where you're on house shows and it's it's you know all singles matches every night unless you're a tag team. You know? Oh, that's a great point. And with that said, though, I think something like the Braun Strowman injury speaks a little bit to the fact that you know they are willing to put things on hold or even the roman reigns suspension last year for sometimes pretty big guys to deal with an issue now that said i think the brock lesnar thing is just you know the huge huge thing in the room where it's hard to ignore to say okay so you care so much about wellness unless the guy is quote-unquote part-time and in which case you don't give a crap because their contract says you can't test them can't suspend them and you don't really care yeah, I, I mean, I think there's the, a quote somewhere in where Vince McMahon was in front of a, a congressional committee. This is from like 07 or 08. This is fo- this is following the um. The yeah, it was the, wax, the Waxman. Um, uh, exactly. S- you, you know and he this. did the congressional where, where testimony. Said, yeah. Where he says that you know he, he I, I wish I could find the quote fast enough, but he, he basically alludes to the fact that the the wellness policy is motivated by for, for PR reasons, you know. I mean, he defends. He goes on and on defending it or whatever, and, and, and denying that they've done anything wrong. But he basically says that there's something like two words, you know, public relations or something like that. Yeah. So, but anyway, the point is, I mean, you look at Vince McMahon, and you look at Muscle and Fitness magazine when he's on the cover of it, and you know, I mean, come on, the, the guy's 71 years old and he looks like that, and I, I don't believe that he sees, 
you know, steroids as being something that's really that dangerous or, or bad for you. You know, I think he, you know, he probably sees it as, you know, it's something that's helped him a lot and sparked the fountain of youth for him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, to a degree, for sure. And I mean, I think, I think there's always something to be said about the fact that every wrestling promoter basically wants their stars to do as much as they can and whatever they need to do to get them to that point. They're they want usually... them to do as much steroids as they can. Yeah, no, but I just mean like <laughs> many shows. Like, you know, when the, the Austin Rock Mankind era, you had guys that were breaking down and they needed, you know, breaks. And at the same time, they're under incredible pressure to keep going and going and going. And it's challenging, you know, for them. And so sometimes if, if they were to say, you know, would a promoter say that he would be against it in that situation? Probably not. But on the flip side, I don't think they want their people dying. I don't think they like the black eye it gives the company. I don't think they like guys that are completely broken down. And I do think that they, there is a little bit of a humanitarian element to the, uh, you know, the fact that they are offering rehab and whatnot for people because they recognize that so many guys are not in a position where they can regulate themselves. Uh, yeah. before it's, I mean, it's, you look at things like what, what happened with, with Kurt Angle. Where they, I, and I think part of it was that you know, Vince McMahon doesn't want a gold medalist to die on his watch, and, and that's the bad PR. But, you know, I mean, Kurt Angle had some, you know, addiction issues and they decided that he couldn't he couldn't work there anymore. And they've done other things in the past, like I believe they've ordered was it Carlito and Umaga to go to rehab and they wouldn't go to rehab. So they were fired. Yeah, exactly. And and it's always going to be a combination of PR and not. And when you're a publicly traded company, I think you have to think about these things in a much more realistic manner. And in some ways, if you were to say, look at the lifespan of some of these sports leagues and how much they've stuck their head in the sand over the years, and then they've come back now and they're beginning to deal with the fact that they have to do drug testing and suspensions and whatnot. WWE doesn't seem that far behind. On the flip side, when you look at, you know, kind of the way UFC has been breaking down, it says a lot about the fact that there's a big difference between um, being able to pass regular drug tests and being in a position where you're passing drug screens of all types and random amounts and whatnot. So, uh, you know, it, it will be interesting to see as they continue this massive uh, recruiting effort across the world for the biggest, the strongest, you know, the wildest people. And then you think about what the difference is between what is legal in other countries and what's legal here. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they might find some challenges when they start recruiting certain Chinese or Indian athletes based on the records yeah. of certain Chinese and Indian uh, Olympic athletes. Yeah, those Lucha Libre wrestlers always uh, are in great shape for some reason. Yeah, well. Um, so, but I was thinking, like, if, if they've got, you know, live business is so stable, and if you even take John Cena out of the mix, and the, the live business is still pretty strong. I mean, I, I think they could you know, give everybody eight months, you know, eight months out of the year, you're going to work house shows, but then three months out of it, you're not going to work house shows and just rotate everybody out so that there's, you know, there's no big disparities and spread the star power around, but you, know, you can give people, you know, you can still be at TV on Monday or Tuesday, but you got three months out of the year where you don't have to be on the road for four days or whatever it is. That that also brings up the other question about uh, something that was being discussed, I know, on, on the Wrestling Observer Radio, was how do you pay guys these days? So, like we say, if the shows are so steady, Eddie, and you have guys that are slated at the top, and you have guys that are clear at the bottom of the card, and then you have guys that are, you know, fluctuating, going up and going down, a Cesaro, say, or a Miz, and the question is, how? what's the appropriate way to pay guys based on these live events in terms of... You know, does it make sense that, um, you know, 
it should be based on what your original draw is, and that means you know it's really only over three years you're being indexed. Should it really be due to the secret formula, like uh, Dave likes to say, where it's just whoever is on top or the biggest draw? So it's Randy Orton, even when Randy Orton's not the champ, maybe. Or is it if you're not? Because I mean, we're in an era where Cena draws. Without Cena, draws a little less. Other guys on top don't hurt the business a ton. Uh, some do a little bit better than others, but it's pretty hard to say whether an Owens is better than a Reigns when it comes to really, really, really breaking it down. Um, but neither yeah, of them is I probably mean, destroying the business. Well, Ryback had some interesting thoughts on this, right? Everybody should be paid the same. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's clear that if you take certain wrestlers off the card, that the, the card will be hurt worse than if you take other wrestlers off the card. And maybe something like merchandise sales would be a, a really good suggestion about, you know, where the hierarchy is. Um, but that's yeah. not always fair because heels are going to have less merch and sell uh, less merch that's, than that's faces. True. And so, that's you, true. you know, that the whole idea at one point was that, you know, if you're turning heel, then you should even have it be like a merch pool. And so it's like all the guys get a little bit of it and then the, right. the actual guys get the top. But it's it's all over the place. I mean, it's tough because then, you know, even the idea of heel and face hurts because, uh, you know, you think about the, the Wyatt family for years and years. They were, quote unquote, heels. But, you know, they actually sold a ton of merch when they were heels because they were these dark, spooky heels that were getting over. So it's it's hard to even say one is true and one is not. But uh, I agree. Merch merch could be even a larger portion of it. And you could say, you know, you owe a lot more. Uh, obviously, when there was a royalties feed, it was much easier to say it's tied to how many people buy this pay-per-view and where you are. But that's kind of broken down. I was always yeah. fascinated by this idea that when if you could see more of what the breakouts were, uh, you know, you could really figure out what those trends were about, you know, what's the bias that's going into people's decision making. Because it's a little bit like negotiating right. salaries when, you know, everybody, even in sports leagues, when they're negotiating salaries, what do you do? You index off something else or someone else. And so... Um, it would almost be, in my opinion, in the wrestler's interest if there was more knowledge about what everyone was being paid because it would be a lot easier to kind of hold him accountable for one for each other. But you know how wrestlers are and you know how scared everyone would be of really losing their job. Plus, you know, they're they're prone to, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, untruth. <laughs> yeah. I Like something I think I think about, you know, in indie wrestling is as little as we get paid, I, I try to tell people, you know, Tell at least, you know, talk to your friends at least about what, what they get paid so that you know what your going rate is, you know. I, I think the, the more transparency there is about pay, the more fair the pay is going to be because everybody's just going to know what it is. Um, and I mean, if, as if wrestling, just relying on somebody to tell you what they get paid, though, it's another story, you know. Well, but I mean, as freelance wrestling writers and, and audio producers, yeah. it's no lie that I've spoken to many of my colleagues. You know, a lot of us writers and analysts talk to each other. And oftentimes when we go to a new site, we will say to somebody else, hey, what do you get to do this? What do you get to do this? And we'll kind of compare deals to get an idea of, you know, what's a fair number to ask for? Because, you know, what what you, what is fair is whatever you can ask for and both yeah. sides can walk away unhappy with. Yes, yeah. yeah, whatever the market will bear. Yeah. Anyhow, um, just talking about the last things that are coming here, when, when George talks about his kind of different – tiers of what is out there for uh, fandom. He talks about how you have your AVOD streaming, which is all the short form, the YouTube clips, the the Snapchat, the Facebook Live. You have your television viewing, so that's Ron Smackdown. And then you have your, your core of the core that order the WWE Network. And what's funny is sometimes he talks about the short form viewing as being more in that Superstar Inc. 
area than rather than it's the fact that it's mainly clips of their programming, especially things like, you know, Raw and SmackDown that drive a lot of that short form viewing. And so it's funny to me that it sometimes pretends like they're all even these different ecosystems when, in fact, a lot of what that short form viewing is stuff from those other two funnels. Yeah, whenever I've looked at their the viewership on or the views on their YouTube channel, it's always stuff from, from Raw or SmackDown that gets the biggest traffic. And I think other than that, there's they'll do like listicles where they'll be like the top ten biggest you know slams and whatever, and and those will you know can can do millions of views as well. But it, but rarely is it these like specific content shows that he's saying he's developing for yeah. these these channels. No, it's not the the short form content that they're trying to highlight. Um, and, and that just goes to say what in my mind is the biggest difference is you have 74% of your network subscriptions are domestic U S based, and you have 70 plus percent of international, uh, uh, you know, viewing when it comes to the AVOD stuff. And that's a huge disconnect. And when only a quarter of your revenue comes from uh, international today, I, it's hard for me to understand if there's really going to be a transformation just because so many people watch from overseas or if it's like a lot of other things, which is a lot of eyes go to things overseas, but it doesn't always make sense why that's happening and if it's real. Yeah, well, a lot of it's got to do with the economies of these other countries, right? I and mean, if, if there's not a strong middle class in India or China, if people don't have a lot of disposable income, they're not going to spend $10 or whatever it is. Per month on the network and but, and but they can watch it on youtube for free or watch whatever it is that they, they watch on youtube for free which is why it was so strange at one point burials made the claim that the network isn't as strong internationally because it's quote in english only which is just a complete facade because a most of that content on youtube is in english only b tons of stuff on the network is now being cast in other languages C, that has nothing to do with the fact that there's not as good broadband penetration and other things going on in these these different areas of the world. And the last so, part... So so when you go to, to go to like W's YouTube and, and when, you, when you go to Denmark, does it is it still in English or is it, it, it all that stuff is, is is not? No, I mean, it's still going to be the English video. It's it's not done no, 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 in the, the Danish. I mean, I mean the, I'm, no, no, no. I mean the, the text, the text to, that tells you what the title of the video is. Uh... Europe's a bad example because most Europeans don't mm. speak English. So, okay. But th- the last part I would just say is that as these countries develop, I don't know if we should assume that they're going to have the same uh, uh, trends as the Western countries did when they developed. So, for instance, we went from phone lines to dial-up to broadband to cellular. Right. But when you look at the development of Africa, it's been very different where they've pretty much skipped the whole broadband step and gone very – very heavily on mobile and very little. And so that also affects, you know, where the eyeballs are. And so I get George's point about you want to capture the eyeballs there, but I'm not convinced that you can necessarily convert that into people that want to pay for a subscription service on yeah. a And to that point, like look at Japan where they, they had, you know, broadcast over the air TV and cable and satellite have never really caught on. I mean, it, it exists, but it's, the, you know, people don't subscribe to it at the, the rate that they do in the U S and you look at OTT, we got, you know, new Japan, trying to do this NJPW world. And I, the, the impression I get about NJPW world is that it's, yeah, the, the, so the subs are way lower than the W networks subs are, but maybe not to the extent that they're really that much smaller than the W network. As in, if like, if new Japan was, was here in the United States and this was their domestic country, they would have quite a bit more uh, subscribers 
so the point is OTT is not catching on as fast in Japan. Oh, and and I I would definitely say there's probably more Japanese subscribers to New Japan World than there are Japanese subscribers to the WWE Network. That would be a very similar number at best. We got like like forty five or to fifty thousand Japanese subscribers. Yeah. To to, to NJPW World. Yeah, and and that would be like a huge chunk of the, yeah, the, the international number. And we know that when Japan came online, we didn't see much of a jump. Because international is like three to 400,000 networks of international network subscribers, yeah. right? And we think so, more than 100 of that is UK-based. So Right, so that leaves two to 300. And that's so, across the rest of the world. Yeah. That's Germany, that's Mexico, that's Canada, that's all these other places. OSN, right. you know. Right. So that's Australia, why... Australia, yeah. That's why I'm a little dubious that – that not dubious, but I would say that they're probably – and again, it's an English-based service that happens to be available in Japan versus, you know, a Japanese-based service that is, you know, really tailored with Japanese stars. Um, speaking of stars, uh, George made a comment, and I, I had to fact-check him on this just to see what he how true it was. So he said, uh, everybody I talk to tells me that we were most popular in their era. If you're 60 years old, oh, yeah, you guys were big yeah. with Andre. If you're 50, you're big with Hulk. If you're 40, it was Stone Cold. If you're 35, it was The Rock. And if you're 25 to 30, it's John Cena. Is George Barrios a Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame uh, voter? <laughs> I hope not. No, well, this... it's, it's, it's the line that, that that Dave always says is that everybody thinks things are star because that's when they grew up. With yeah. So I looked and I was like, okay, so if you're 60 year old today, let's say you were you watched wrestling when you were like 16, that would be you know in that like 1973, 1982 range, and who would be on television the most back then? Well, you would have had Johnny Rods and Tony Gurria, Baron Mikel Scaluna. Uh, S.D. Jones, Chief J. Strongbow, Ivan Putsky, uh, Dominic Danucci, and then who are the guys who were winning the most? That would have been like Backlin and Pedro and Andre and Martel and Snuka. So I will give him the Andre on the 73 to 82 for the 60-year-old. So I'll give him that one. He said if you're 50, Hulk would have been your guy. Well, if you're 16, that would have been like 83. So... Well, you know, who was big from 83 to 92? Of course, Hulk and Davey Boy and Snuka and JYD and Martell and Andre and Steamboat were all there with Tito and Brett and Greg and Savage and Nightheart and Brutus Beefcake and S.D. Jones was still hanging around and Steve Lombardi. Uh, so I'll give you Hulk and I'll give you Andre. The next one he said was Stone Cold. Now, again, if I'm using the 16-year-old reference, that would be like 93 to 97. That's not a great Stone Cold era because he, he plops in in the middle there and begins rising up. But I wouldn't say that would be the, the heart of the Stone Cold era. You know, that's more of the Razor Mar uh, Ramon and Tatanka and, and Shawn Michaels and Bam Bam and, and this, this is more like the stunning Steve Austin era. Or or the Ringmaster Austin era and Owen Hart yeah. and Billy Gunn and Jeff yeah. Jarrett and and so forth. And then By the way, next to, – to, to pull back the Russell Onyx curtain here. We're we're looking at a Google Doc here. You've got these these eras, you know, <laughs> bu bulleted out one by one, and you've got and, you know there's a secondary bullet underneath all these names, which I'm sure are generated because they, this is like these are guys who have the most matches. Well, right? the first and, bullet and then, is and then most you've got matches. guys who have the most yeah. wins. Yeah. First one is the most matches. Second one is highest winning percentages over seventy yeah. percent. Uh, and so the next era was the Rocks era, uh, which uh, so that was you know when you look at who has the most matches, it's Kane, baby. Because uh, that's 98 to 2000. So you have Kane, the Hardys, Jericho. That's and, his era, man. Uh, 
Edge and Christian, Triple H, Angle, Venus, uh, Chris Benoit, uh, Big Show, JBL, Test, The Deadlies. And then the most wins were pretty funny because you, you really you, – you realize – I started looking at television matches at this point, and you, you can tell that, like, not a lot of guys just get straight winning streaks anymore at this point because Bobby Lashley was on top. Yeah. Followed by uh, John Cena and The Rock and Undertaker. But again, if Bobby you... Lashley has the most wins in the, in the WF slash WWE from 1998 to 2007. Uh, highest percentage of wins. Per- oh, okay. Percentage of wins. Yes. Okay. Because Bobby had a very short run there, and he was pushed very heavily during that run. Okay. Um, and then Cena and Rock and Undertaker, RVD, Rey Mysterio, and Batista. But well, it's it's easy to say, yeah, The Rock was big from 98 to 2007, but that that's really kind of ignoring the fact The Rock was gone for about half of that period. And I think the problem is you... Rock and Stone Cold were from very much a similar era, and he's got to try to spread them across, you know, two different decades. And then he talks about Cena being the big guy from 25 to 30. So I'll give him, I'll give him most, I'll give him a B plus on this for a guy who once referred to Sean Rollins as one of the right. wrestlers he respected. Uh, I'll, one of his I'll, favorite wrestlers. Yeah, I'll give him a lot of credit for getting close there. But as I always say, George Barrows is a media guy who enjoys working for a media company that happens to make wrestling content. And it's at these investor conferences, he's kind of on his game because that's the easiest time for him to deal with the fact that people want to talk about media stuff. When he's at these uh, conference calls, that's a little harder for him because it's always the combination of what is the wrestling strategy with what is the, what's the business actually doing. And the one thing they hate to do is get into granularity to actually explain why they give away free WrestleMania and what the retention rate is and why the churn is still in the 300,000 range and so on and so forth and yeah. just not wave their hands and say, we're doing a great job, just trust us. Yeah, oh, why at, did at they borrow $200 million? <laughs> at, at these conferences, it's it's the Q&A is a lot easier. It's you know, audience members who usually aren't very well acquainted with the company but are well acquainted with media you know, asking, asking him media-related questions, whereas the conference calls... Uh, our analysts, you know, who are very well acquainted with the business, asking questions that he may or may not want to answer. Well, they're, they're acquainted with a type of business that they want to go into. Like I always yeah, say, they're... everybody goes to whatever their thing is. So the YouTube person wants to talk YouTube views. The, uh, you know, the the streaming person wants to talk streaming stuff. The television person wants to talk TV rights. The DVD guy used to always want to talk DVDs. Uh, but a lot of people miss kind of the bigger stories about like, why is live event attendance doing this? Or is this really, is three hours and, and this the right way? You know, they had a story this week where they said that SmackDown is going to start running kind of picture in picture ads, which I thought was really interesting. So instead of um, pulling away for commercial breaks, they'll basically just do side by sides, go to mute and then kind of run the commercials, but still have the action on on the left side. Similar right. to what used just... to be with the second they stream. They did this a couple times, and I guess last year, I, I think I remember catching it. I was like, what is going on? Yeah, it must have been a test run. So uh, the next card up here is One Angry Man. It's a Jesse Ventura with his uh, black beard. Uh, and it says, oh. Jesse the Body Ventura roars in fury as he gets on an opponent down on the mat. Ventura can be a savage opponent, period. Copyright 1985, Titan oh. Sports. I want to talk New Japan. That's wonderful imagery. Uh-oh. Speaking of New Japan, uh, there was a lot of New Japan financial stuff that came out this week, perfect for WrestleNomics geek like you and I. And uh, one thing I, I will say, kind of just kicking this off, and uh, you can read a lot of this in The Observer, you can read a lot of this in the Fightful.com article that Brandon did. 
Uh, one thing I thought you did very well that I thought Dave did not do very well, Dave Meltzer, was that uh, you sourced your data because almost all of the numbers that came out in what you're showing here were not numbers that you yourself had collected and figured out, but rather were data points that were both from a news article in uh, Japanese that somebody else translated. They were from data points that uh, someone on Twitter had collected and calculated themselves. And right. as much as I love Dave for his incredible dedication to the sport, and I do think he is in a you know a Hall of Fame writer when it comes to professional wrestling, I think he is terrible at giving credit where credit is due when it comes to information that is given, and especially when that information is not information when all he's doing is basically recapping someone else's article. I, I think sometimes he does a lousy job of just kind of admitting, hey, I didn't, I, I, I this isn't my opinion. This isn't secret facts that were fed to me by another company this is me right. literally just restating an article that somebody else posted and uh there's lots of times that i have gone through uh great personal uh, uh tribulations to understand these complex legal arguments about what's happening in these lawsuits and i've summarized them and i've sent them and then you know i'll see him kind of quote them and use them and i'll think you know dave it would be great if you <laughs> gave me a shout out and and that's selfish and that's me but you know it's well, also that's, that's we have all been there but that's a small comparison to when, you know, you're literally just restating somebody else's article and not including it. And so I, I kind of thought that was a little weird in the, the observer here that it wasn't made more clearly uh, kind of the source material that this all came from. Yeah, and, and to pull the curtain back uh, for Russell Long's radio again, you you started to talk about this originally. And then and then I guess there was some internet, the Internet exploded at your house and, and I and the call dropped, but I thought for sure that the Wrestling Observer Newsletter uh, Mafia maybe had, had put a hit on on you to to prevent you from uh, disparaging the name of Dave Meltzer. But now, um, I wonder if sometimes he he's so used to you know not crediting sources because you want to you know keep your sources anonymous that it, it, ha it has become habit for him to you know to not necessarily give people credit. Um, when I email him stuff sometimes that. I expect him to like to report. I will make a point of it to to say there, you know, please give me credit, and then he will because there have been times where I where I sent him something and he's yeah just just like you said he'll just just write it in the observer just you know whatever. It's, I think it's just one of those things where you know the observer has been around so long and it's it's almost it's not really like any type of um, I mean like the, the the form is not really like a newspaper. Or, or the articles, uh, I think, that, that even we write when, when we write things that are published. Uh, it's, it's a newsletter that originated back in the 80s, and it was just, it started off as a newsletter to tell, you know, a, a, sm a relatively small number of people what was going on in the wrestling business, and it, it's evolved to become this much larger thing. Exactly, and, and it, it, it straddles that line in a way that sometimes makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, the same way that anytime someone calls me a wrestling journalist or a wrestling historian makes me uncomfortable because I yeah. kind of feel like you have to have certain kinds of journalistic standards if you're going to use that name. And that would include things like how do you attribute sources? How do you retract stories? How do you source stories? How do you, you know, how do you cross check stories? How do you edit things? And so sometimes it, it kind of lives in the space right between being a professional blog and being a, uh, a really useful, you know, legitimate news source. And it's tough when you straddle that line because we're in the era of new media and, you know, going as far back to the Mark Madden on the WCW hotline got sued one time. 
And it was a whole debate about whether or not someone who's sort of an independent wrestling journalist working for a company that is paying him on a hotline, does he get journalistic coverage? And there's a whole body of law coverage that's all about this one lawsuit because of that, uh, which is really interesting. And so the, there is kind of this weird space to say, what does new media mean? What does new journalism mean? What happens when old journalism or old forms of kind of this communication begins to evolve out? And so I, I struggle with that myself. And, and I think what you're saying is actually good advice for all our listeners, um, more than just you and I, is to say, if you do send things to people and you want credit for them, it's important to make sure that you ask for it. And it's not always in an egotistical manner as much as it's, it can be really useful to build up your credibility as a source and as a journalist and as an investigator and a researcher and a writer and an analyst. Uh, when people can say, oh, that information came from so-and-so, that's interesting. I should find out more about from that person rather than sometimes I'll go to Dave and Dave will just kind of not know anything more than the details that have been given to him at that point. And so it's hard for him to even expand and expound on that. And so sometimes then I think people kind of give up on the subject when maybe there's a more interesting conversation to be had if they could go back to the person who was really doing all that research and interest. Yeah. Get off and, my and I, and, I, and I think it's important too, like it's especially for when, when we when we do like put on our, our historian hat or when you, you know when you and I go back through the archives, we go back to like some observer from 1995 to look something up. It, it would be helpful if the original source was mentioned. Because I know that's, that's something I run into a lot, just you know, doing research with when I'm going through articles that are already online, or, or when you when you find something that's on like a, a wrestling news aggregator site, it's really helpful when they hyperlink like the original article, like from Sports Illustrated or, or whatever, where where it originally came from, so that we can you know get the original quote and make sure this you know the, the secondary reporter didn't you know take this out of context or, or misquote it or whatever the case. Um, and, and that brings us back to this New Japan article here because we're going to get into what the numbers actually said and then we're going to get into some of the discussion on Twitter that people were having about these articles. So uh, take me through kind of what was the information that was published and then what were we able to do with that information and putting it in context? Sure. I just want to say real quick, though, like speaking of good advice, you, you wrote a, a blog on your indeedwrestling.blogspot.com about you, you read a book of like about the CIA, right? And, and there's like these these ten things that you should do when you when you talk to sources or whatever. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. My uh... what's the, what's what's the name of that so people could search it? <laughs> uh, I will I will tell you in in thirty seconds here. I wrote that back in I think January or February because I remember it was mentioned on um, yeah, the art of intelligence repurposed for wrestling analysts, and yeah. it was basically just talking about how when uh, CIA officers are asked to do analytic work that they have to basically try to predict the future and uh, they have to write these reports. And it's tough because sometimes you don't really know what the future is. And so you're pressured to kind of come up with things. And so it's like report nothing but the unvarnished and as far as possible, the whole truth, understand, right. but do not pander to the prejudice and the perceptions of the con customer. And as it goes on like that. And I think that's like, it, it's true. I wish I could say I always live by these rules and I don't, but um, it's kind of a good if you're missing a journalism training the way I am, uh, sometimes getting kind of some other grounds of what is maybe the best way to think about wrestling analytics and analyst work, uh, this helps me at least. Yeah, so people should read that on your blog. And I've, I've never told you this. I printed those pages out, and I don't read them as often as I should. But I've got that tape to my wall, this, this 1 through 10, State of Grace and all that stuff. And, but, and I did, in fact, say it came from the book Why Spy on the Art of Intelligence, Intelligence Security by Brian Stewart and Samantha Newberry. Uh, so well, I sourced you know. it. <laughs> so anyway, so New Japan Pro Wrestling. 
So it looks like you know the the, the the news here that we're talking about is like New Japan, uh, you know, it was bought by this company Bushi Road, which is this video game and card game company back in 2012. And they've really turned the business around, uh, especially in terms of re- revenue. When they took it over in 2012, it was a $10 million uh, business year over year. And then th- now we've got all, all the way to the point where in 2017, they've, they've gone up year after year and they project to make about $35 million uh, on the year. I think Dave reported something a little lower than that. I'm not sure where he got that from, but but that's what I got. I get $35 million a year, but that's you know they're they're talking like four billion dollars or sorry four billion yen, which is about at the level that that they were doing in 1996 and 1997. Of course, like these are years where like they're doing the Tokyo Dome multiple times a year. They're doing Osaka Dome here and there, and uh, they've got Shinya Hashimoto and Keiji Muto and Masahiro Chono. And like the Ogawa feud with Hashimoto was about to start here. So this is a time that, you know, in 96, 97 where we, that we think of as being a much more popular time for New Japan Pro Wrestling than it is today. Although they're about to make about the same amount of money. And, it, and before you say, well, what about inflation? Like the, the Japanese yen hasn't inflated that much, unlike the U.S. dollar. You go back to about the mid 80s. It's it, there's been very little inflation year over year so that there's not that much inflation to adjust for but i adjusted for it anyway in this graph that i did for the, on this article for fightful.com and you can see it's they're going to be making about the same amount of money this year as they did in 96 97 so this was interesting so it was a report in uh nikon nikon sports i'm great at foreign yeah. languages uh that came out in january and it was translated by somebody on the f4w board mh agent 007 um and it was really interesting when you looked at it, and then they were also kind of pulling in words that uh, Kadani, the uh, the guy, had talked about. You know, what was their profit margin in the past, and uh, what you had reported here. And again, this was translated by Chris Char- uh, Charlton Carlton, who had written the Lion's Pride, uh, the really good New Japan book that everybody's been talking about. Um, and he basically said that they do maybe about a thirteen percent margin, which is about you know a little less than four million dollars of operating income. And you did a good job of kind of saying, well, let me compare it to WWE, and their operating income is much lower, you know, maybe only 8%, but they that's like $56 million. And, of course, WWE has diversified in a lot of ways that New Japan has not. So if you were to strip out, you know, a performance center and a, uh, a WWE Studios division and a lot of these other things that they spend money on, I could promise you they could kill the operating margin of what New Japan does on both percentage and, of course, on dollars. But um, it is really interesting to kind of get that comparison to say, you know, they're both companies that are just floating plus or minus 10 percent. Yeah. And to go back to the thing that Barrio said in in the talk that we were just talking about, where he says that he has pivoted from being a live events business to being a media business. New Japan is I get, trying to make that same pivot. They, they're not there in terms of they're not getting the TV rights revenue that WWE is. I don't know what they're getting, if anything, from TV Asahi or like Samurai TV or something. Um, and they just started New Japan World, and it's, it hasn't been as successful as the WWE Network has been. Yeah, and obviously they have the, the access deal here in the U.S., but as, as Dave Meltzer was writing, you know, there's – TV deals in the UK and India that WWE has really capitalized on. As they said, that's the, like their number three and number four biggest contracts. Whereas, you know, New Japan is still really struggling to get in, to break in those marketplaces. And it will be really interesting to see because American media has traditionally always been very good internationally. It works really well everywhere. I watched SmackDown when I was in Ghana. You know, it's, it's incredible how far this stuff spreads. 
versus things like uh, New Japan, you know, there's been some really weird years where it's popped up in different cultures. I know it was in the UK in the 80s and the 90s. It's been in other places, even in the US in the 80s. I think there was some some years it was available. But it, it tends to be a lot harder to kind of get break in kind of the other direction. And uh, there's just so many reasons for that. Uh, what I was fascinated about was that article on um, purusutoday.com that talked about New Japan's revenue and then the sumo wrestling industry and then the combined Japanese wrestling business, including New Japan. So can you talk us through those numbers? Yeah. yeah but by the way, we're talking about uh, something that was reported by Nikon Sports. Did you ever get you, – you did results, right? You would do like these big results reports? Sometimes. Yeah. Do you remember getting results from Nikon Sports? No, no. No, you didn't. You didn't do the Japanese stuff then. I I usually used other people's materials and then didn't credit them. <laughs> then you no, didn't credit them. No, I would you find stuff on like Yahoo. <laughs> you know, obviously you could find like crazy results on on Yahoo all the time. Uh, Yahoo Japan. Okay. I mean. But uh, no, I haven't okay. I haven't dug into them too yeah. much. But uh, I used to do like I mean we're talking like 2002 or 2001. I would do like I would go to the Nikon Sports and use like the it wasn't even Google Translator at the time it was like Alta Vista or something like that and, and I would like write my Japanese news reports. I know Chris Zellner would do would do results. As Babblefish well. yeah. was the big one then yeah. you know, with the Alta Vista. Yeah. No, because I wasn't because because Nikon Sports was way too mainstream. I I of course in the world's biggest survival to beat a mark, and so. <laughs> To follow Survival Tobita, you cannot go to a newspaper. You have to go to where the monsters of the universe hide, which is on Japanese indie sleeves websites. Oh. Uh, and so I, I, there's some of my favorite Japanese indie sleeves, you know, where you could see your S, SPWC and your, your FMW Revival uh, and your Union Pro shows and all that uh, stuff. And so I'd go to those websites and check them out. And no newspaper that was worth its ink would, it would publish such trash. No, 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 Onita Pro or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like um, DDT was sleaze back in the day too. Now it's like the number two promotion in Japan. But, but anyway, I should probably talk about New Japan and compared to sumo wrestling and compared to Japanese wrestling overall and compared to WWE. So we're talking like how much revenue do they make in a year? And New Japan in, in their fiscal year 2016, they made 28 million dollars in that year. You compare that to sumo, they're making about 95. So that's you know almost four times as much sumo wrestling is compared to New Japan. But then when you, when you if you just combine the entire Japanese pro wrestling industry and including New Japan in that, uh, that's 109 million. So that that means New Japan makes up I think it's something like 25, 26 percent of the total Japanese wrestling industry, which is quite different. I, I would think we don't know. What the I've never seen anybody try to make an estimate about what the entire you know, U.S. Uh, pro wrestling scene is worth. But, so, so I would cha- I look at that number and I say, is this a porn number? And what I mean by that is there's that favorite stat where they used to always say porn is a billion dollar industry and this and that. And then when you would talk to people uh, in these things, they'd sometimes be like, this is a number that just continuously gets bantered about. But no one ever mm. breaks it down and says, this is how I got to that number. And, and you know, maybe now with the Internet, the way things are, perhaps. But what what's funny is it's one of these numbers that it's like it's an easy number to go put out there and just be like, yeah, that's true. But I don't know if I believe it. So when you say it's one hundred million dollars and New Japan is only one quarter of the entire Japanese wrestling marketplace, that's really interesting because that means 75 percent has to be made up all by competitors that are smaller than New Japan. And so, yeah, you have your Dragon Gate, your DDT, your Big Japan, your All Japan, your Noah, your Stardom, and then you go down to your all your your tertiary and 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 tiny little shows. And and to be fair, 
there's a lot more of a vibrant wrestling community that, you know, people can go and watch because they have such big population centers like in Tokyo where you can do things and have lots of shows, a lot like Mexico City. So maybe it is more uh, akin to Mexico where there's so many shows and so many promotions that, yeah, can accomplish, you know, 75% of your things are in less than 25% of the, the companies. But that really surprises me that it's that big. And I was even thinking about the U.S. size because, like you said, we wondered how big is the U.S. You know, imagine if every weekend there was 100 uh, indie wrestling shows, right? So, yeah. and then we'll say that's for 50 weekends a year. 100 wrestling shows, that's 5,000 wrestling shows. And then we say each one of those shows can draw somewhere between 200 and $1,000. Does that seem like a, a fair amount? D- dollars or attendees? Dollars. In terms of a gate? I'll give him credit. I'll say $1,500 a show. You know, because like an average indie, let's say 200 at, at 12 bucks a ticket. That's what, what's 200 times 12. You're good at math. <laughs> $2,400. But let's say $1,500. Right. We'll, we'll split it. So that's $7.5 million a year, which while that sounds like, yeah, that's a lot of money, that's only $7.5 million. That's not $75 million. And the U.S. has a ton of wrestling, a ton of population, and at the same time has, uh, you know, we're talking 10 times that amount. So either there's more than 100 shows a weekend uh, or something else going on. So it, it, I, I, I'm splitting off here, and I'm kind of – getting facetious with it but i'm just a little bit thrown by that number and so i would love to know where it came up with beyond just you know it's an industry expert or it's including something else like rings or pancreas or k1 or some other fighting that they're calling wrestling but they really mean it's something bigger than that in which case i would think some of those feds might actually be not all those feds but you know the biggest ones um uh whatever the the dream or whatever the ryzen you know, something like that, which does make a lot of money. So I could see that, but yeah, they may be referring to like the Kakutogi, which is they may be referring to like MMA and pro wrestling together. But I don't, just while you were talking, I just did the math real quick on it because if you go to this article that I wrote on Fightful.com, I got a, a tweet uh, with some math that was done by Evan Deadlyson's W on on Twitter, who's also like the uh, NJPW Reddit guy. Um, he's he's done a lot of a lot of good work uh, collecting attendance data. For Japanese promotions, and I just added up All Japan, NOAA, DDT, uh, Big Japan, and Stardom. This doesn't include Dragon Gate, which is you know about the number two or number three promotion. But just adding those those one, two, three, four, five up, uh, that's that's a total of about eighty four thousand uh, attendees from January to April. Well, I guess I did last year. This will be good enough. Uh, about eighty four thousand total between those five promotions. Compare that to New Japan, which did. 104,000. So that's, you know, that's about 80% of like those five promotions together only did about 80% of what, of what new Japan does. So I don't know, there must be a lot of indie sleaze in Japan. That's making up the rest of that number. Something. So someone can, you know, the, the flip of it is, and this is the truth that for years, there were some promotions that were basically being held up as a way to launder money by uh, the Yakuza and, and other groups. And so you always have that element of, yeah, their books might show millions of dollars of revenue because they're forcing people to, you know, buy buy tickets and, and support them that way so they can run this money through it. So who, who knows exactly what that is? And, of course, it, that's changed over the last 30 years here. But, um, you know, we saw that with FMW. We saw that with some of these other Pride and other 
places that you yeah. know, we're promoting that way. So it, it's maybe this is the uh, combined Japanese pro wrestling industry, including the Yakuza. Yeah, which gets us back to the porn number. So you know, it's all one big circle. Yeah. So and then, um, by the way, so so WWE's revenue for a year is about seven hundred million dollars. So to give you an idea of just how much bigger WWE is as a business versus New Japan, you know, it's seven hundred million versus twenty eight, and that's that's something like twenty five times the size. Which you know, it amused me because I did a, a long podcast one time that never got recorded uh, about. Is WWE Boy, monopoly? The boycott? Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that's what I meant to say. Monopoly, yeah. And and the thing about that was, is you know, we talked about what's one way of doing it, and I was saying, well, if you can estimate the dollar share of all these different companies and say what percentage is WWE, you can come up with what a court considers a definition of monopoly. And you know, being able to say, well, there's at least a hundred million dollars outside of what WWE is doing right now puts a, a significant dent in the ability to call that just a, a pure monopolistic. Uh, situation but one thing that i thought was funny and we were talking here about sourcing articles and writing articles is we that the subject of okada's salary came up in one of these articles yeah well it came up in i don't know we would have to sit, sit here and look it up but it, it came up in a it was a wrestling inc article that ultimately linked to it, it was something from voice it's from vice sports all right so that's the original source was was a vice sports article that uh, was was about new japan and I guess the number was they, they said that he made two point two million dollars on the year. And you were just saying, well, that's two point two million dollars, and this is a company that grosses twenty eight million dollars. So, uh, right. by so by... That, that would be eight percent of the entire company's revenue is going to Kazuchika Okada. Uh, I don't know. I know. I know Evan was was skeptical of that, and he, he might he, you know he looks at these things more closely than I do. So. Yeah, and I mean, uh, though, though, you know, let's say, so if we said it was WWE, like you said, that would be like $60 million for, for John that, Cena. That would be like John Cena making $60 million in a year, yeah. But, Which he, he probably makes about 10 or something like that. But, you know, a Vince McMahon makes probably $60 million in a year. Inclu- because... Including dividends, he makes, I forget, yeah, we, he makes a ton of money. Yeah, he makes so, like du- double-digit millions. Yeah, so I mean, you, a very primary owner of a company might make, you know, that large percentage. Now, again, there's plenty of guys, not plenty of guys, there's several guys in WWE who make more than $2.1 million a year right now. Um, in w- So it's not that that's an absurd salary. And of course, if you branch out to, you know, legitimate sports, uh, Bryce Harper, Luke Harper's brother, uh, just signed a something like a hundred and thirty-five million dollar deal, uh, or something, some ridiculous number. You know, I'm, I probably have that off, but uh, you know, just things like that where I, I see what these baseball salaries are, and I think, my God, you know, wrestlers have no money compared to these people. So it's um very different uh comparison. But I thought it was funny that there was that Vice article. Did we actually find the Vice article, or had it kind of magically disappeared? Yes, uh, someone found it. We 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 found it, and it does. I've have seen the quote. It's okay. it's two point two million dollars. But you know, Evan said that it, be, it might they might be conflating uh, the the money that was being used to promote him because I think New Japan you know earlier was uh, spending money as as part of like a media campaign to get him over to make him a star. Sure, sure, and that makes some sense. Uh, that that that's always going to be kind of confusing. Um, that when Bryce try... Harper, $13.62 million in 2017, <laughs> 13, not 135, but 13. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. My point being, you know, that's more than probably almost anyone in wrestling is making today. Uh, yeah. And... I mean, I, the scene is probably at the top, right? At about 10. 
I think that's what the Forbes thing said. Do we, do we disagree with that? Yeah, I think Cena's at the top if you're not counting the McMahons as wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and if you're not counting Triple H equity down the line. But yeah, for sure. Well, tr- well tr- Triple H's total compensation was it was not over $5 million, right? It was like $4 million something, I think. Yeah, that's true. But I meant if you combine it with his wife and the fact that somehow in about 10 years from now, I think he's going to have a much larger share of this company. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, speaking of New Japan, they had their big press conference. Uh, interesting strategy, of course, right? Let's let's run uh, a, a show in the U.S. And then there's really different schools of thought on whether or not New Japan is, is headed in the right direction by trying to run a tournament here. Should they start touring? Should they open up a dojo again? Uh, what what were you taking away from this press conference that I know you watched? Well, it, it just happened minutes. It ended minutes uh, before we started recording this. So it was there, there's this guy Christian Cole, who I guess is this California indie manager who is sort of the MC of this press conference and who went through basically some PowerPoint slides. Uh, the, the most important stuff that he said was that you know night one is is going to be live on XS. Uh, on Saturday, July 1st, live at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then night two is going to be aired on Access the following Saturday, uh, taped. So uh, obviously the, the shows are going to be on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, you can watch the Sunday show. They're going to push for that, uh, push for you to watch that live on New Japan World. So I don't, maybe it's going to be like night one is is the Raw and night two is the pay-per-view that hopefully they'll, they'll push people to go subscribe to NJPW World and become subscribers so they can watch the next night live. Um Speaking of New Japan World, uh, you think the estimate is what 60, 50,000, 60,000 total subscribers these days? Uh, they there's a I think there's a more current update in the Observer than the one that I wrote about. But the last time uh, when I looked at it right after Wrestle Kingdom, uh, I, I deduced that they've got 60,000, and 74% of that is in Japan, and 26% of that is outside Japan. And and the observer basically said something like the numbers dropped to like fifty thousand, right. and it's right. like ten thousand outside. And so this brings up the next question: ten thousand in the U.S. that or ten thousand that subscribe to New Japan outside of Japan, how many flow slam higher or lower? Right now, I think lower. Are we talking fifteen hundred? That low? Uh, Five thousand? Three thousand? I, I don't know. I've been asked this question a few times. Um, I would guess somewhere around three to five thousand. Interesting. And, and I don't know either. Um, I don't have the the secret yeah. source. That's been we used. we've looked at yeah you know, we've looked at stuff like um, similar web traffic, which which you've done some research on, and it, it's not very reliable. But I think maybe when you look at look at websites and compare them to one another. There's there's some insight to be had there, and the the, the, the flow slam similar web data that we see it, it it looks like they're not doing a lot better than progress is. And this progress is the the UK promotion that's got you know their own video on demand service. So I I think if anything progress might be doing better than people might think it is. Um, yeah. That's a great point that um. It's, you know, we, we did look at the web traffic. I actually just updated all my numbers uh, this week oh, just to oh, kind of see, see what it looked like. And so it was showing me that, you know, an average week for Flow Slam was um, in the, like, ten to 12,000 range. And I, and I think that the thing is, on, when, you're on, looking at, when, you're, when you're looking at websites that have uh, less traffic, 
it's like the, 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 I think this tool, whatever similar web is, however they get their data, it's it's really ideal for you know websites with higher traffic. And the, yeah. the, the more you look at websites with smaller traffic, I think the less and less reliable it gets. Yeah, it was interesting. So I was looking at something like WWE, and if you look at their traffic, it's really well coordinated to Royal Rumble or the and um, WrestleMania, and yeah. it, it was really clean and and you know it followed the trend you expected to. To follow, but, but we also saw, saw stuff like Royal Rumble, as far as similar web was concerned, did better than WrestleMania, which, which is surprising. At yeah. least at this year's numbers, they looked better when I when I looked at them yesterday. Um, part of it is because uh, the, what they don't always show you is that they they if the month doesn't end, they just give you the week. Then it ends on the thirty first of that month. So sometimes you're looking at a five day or six day number if it's at the no no but I've, I've recorded these by the day so oh, like the day of, go, of Rumble I've got the the, the spreadsheet I probably shared it with you before you so the day, like the, the the day of Rumble it's like a million visits whatever that means all right don't don't take that you know to the bank but like a million visits and then WrestleMania was like eight hundred thousand like no. the day of yeah actually so I yeah I don't know. No, that's that's very true. It, it's showing me here the week of the twenty sixth. There was two point three eight five million views on the WWE Network, and the week of uh, uh, the 29th of March, which was the week of WrestleMania, there's two point four five. So very similar number. But yeah, yeah. you're right. From a, a, an interest standpoint, I think it's very different. Yeah, and you can go to similarweb.com if you want to take a look at what, what the hell we're talking about here. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm welcome to share my spreadsheet with anyone. Though I will say that uh, having compared it against a few people who've been willing to show me their stats, uh, it doesn't seem to be exactly right. I think it's probably useful in the sense that it's good to measure the same thing every day or every month, but it's not necessarily useful to say this is the the truth for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm really yeah. curious to see if I can track it for a whole year and then track WWE Network subscriptions for a whole year and see if there's any correlation whatsoever or if, you know, it's the temperature would be just as good. In yeah, which case, I mean, I've, I've got them, I've got like the pay-per-view and NXT dates going back to September because, I mean, it, they exist going back further than that, but like I only got aware of this website about about at that time, and you get, but you got to like spend, you know, $1,000 to, to pay for their service to get all the, all the back data. But if it does turn out that uh, temperature is in fact correlated, you can expect to see, you know, clickbait ads that say today's temperature is dot dot dot. So dive, uh, dive, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's finish off the show with a quick talk about Ring of Honor. Sinclair acquires Tribune for three point nine billion dollars, and uh, obviously a lot of talk about Sinclair this week or this month, really, as kind of the new conservative uh, rival to Fox. They're jumping in to be in some of the biggest uh, cities that they were not in previously because, of course, uh, Sinclair is a big syndicated television player, and they've been very interested in kind of getting these tertiary markets, and this is their opportunity to really get in the big ones. And uh, you were talking about how much WGN America is going to cover uh, pretty soon. So WGN America is in 80 million homes uh, in the U.S. So, if you, so like how does that relate to like Pop TV? And USA Network. So USA Network's got about 93 million homes, and pops on 96 or 76. So WGN America, if Ring of Honor were to get on WGN America, which which you know is a property of Tribune, that would put them in on a channel that's got more homes than than the channel that Impact is played on right now. And more, um, more more homes than FS2, which is 50 million, L Ray 45 million, even Access, yeah. which is probably only in the 40 to 50 million range. 
Right. Uh, so it, it would be a lot of people. Uh, we, we've seen, though, before just having wrestling on television does not equal ratings. Uh, you have to, you know, have something people care about. And there's always the question of does the Ring of Honor product today look like something that people are going to want to watch if they're unfamiliar with it? But uh, I do think, you know, they're having a little bit of a resurgence right now, again, by using the New Japan talent specifically. But uh, in general, you're seeing Cody Rhodes and some of these other kind of tertiary, these tertiary, my word of the day, other stars kind of coming around. Uh, it sounded like Cody Rhodes is saying he can draw a crowd of 10,000. Yeah. Well, he said on, I guess, Dave Meltzer, so, someone asked Dave on Twitter if he thought the Ring of Honor could fill a 10,000 seat arena. And he replied saying, uh, you know, not anytime soon. So Cody Rhodes, I guess, saw that and said that, I, you know, challenge accepted. And then there were these tweets later in the day saying several aggressive phone calls and messages from me. Now I have an entire office looking for 10,000 know, K venues. 10,000 seat venues around the continental United States. Um, and he's sort of you know, messing around saying, maybe we'll call it Starcade because my mom probably owns the rights to that. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't expect Ring of Honor to draw a 10,000 uh, attendance anytime soon. I know they just set, set their record uh, on WrestleMania weekend, but uh, it was well short of 10,000. And of course, New Japan had the huge, the instant sellout with the, was it 2,300 uh, or so? Uh, right for the for, for July first and July second, they've they've sold out the configuration of Long Beach uh, Convention Center, which is going to be twenty three hundred people uh, each day. Which it, again brings up to the question of then what would be capacity? Is it four thousand? Is it five thousand? Is it ten thousand? You know, I don't think there's anyone foolish enough to think it's you know twenty thousand unless you're living in a little bubble. But obviously, they probably could have done twice as much. Um, and it's always a question of you got to strike when the iron's hot because, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily have the ability to always just come back and be the first time and be big. And, you know, we've seen a lot of services try and think that they can dip their toe in the water and maybe it hasn't gone so well. So it's interesting to see them be so aggressive. ROH could be competing with New Japan soon with an OTT service. Yeah, uh, real quick, uh, the Ring of Honor show that they ran on WrestleMania weekend, uh, that, that was their record attendance is 3,500 to give you an idea of like, you know, where they're at. And I think that's a, that's a draw that you think about, well, like did the TV, is the TV really what made them them break their new record? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure it doesn't hurt and it probably helps uh, quite a bit. But I, if you look at towns like Chicago for ring of honor and New York city for ring of honor, these are towns that they don't have, you know, syndicated TV in. they might now if they get on WGN and they might now because they've got new uh, stations because they acquired Tribune. Uh, but these are you know, towns that they run shows in all the time, and they and they draw well in, but they don't get the TV. But but anyway, uh, so th and there's some, some talk that Ring of Honor uh, might have an OTT service. And back in March, uh, Joe Coff, who's I don't know what his title is with Ring of Honor, but he's, he's the boss in Ring of Honor. Uh, he made it sound like Sinclair is going to put together a Sinclair-specific OTT service, which he says Ring of Honor would be the, the centerpiece of. So I can't even imagine what, what that would look like. I don't know, like. Like Ring of Honor alongside conservative news or something. I don't know. Well, but... they, they, what's funny is that, you know, Sinclair has their fingers in so many other little venues. Like they're doing this uh, Sinclair Silver Chalice 120 Sports Venture, which is an over the top digital platform with sports and all this. They just bought, was it the Tennis Channel a few, um, uh, not too long ago. And so they, they have all these kind of entities that they're kicking around and trying to figure out what they're doing with. And so it'll be really interesting to see kind of if something develops or if this is just going to be another, you know, we spent a lot of money, we have a lot of debt, 
Ring of Honor is not something that's going to necessarily generate a ton of money. Sell it to Billy Corgan tomorrow, uh, for all we know. Um, so it, it will be really interesting because, you know, you're right. Ring of Honor probably had 8,000 to 12,000 people that were, you know, pay-per-view customers when they were doing traditional pay-per-view. Uh, there was, you know, when they had a really good partnership with things like uh, getting, you know, if, if a Ring of Honor OTT service were to have some kind of partnership with New Japan in some way and then actually be available on Roku, you could imagine that would be a little bit of a game changer. But uh, we'll see if that ever happens. Yeah. Well, there was a, a good article by, um, did you want to try to pronounce his name? No, no, week? you get the honor. I, I, I think he hasn't, he hasn't corrected me when I said it last time. So yeah. I Lavi Margolin, who, who uh, he's actually a, a Sinclair shareholder, so he's really you know, especially interested in you know what Sinclair is doing, what they're doing with Ring of Honor. But he so he looked at you know what, what would be the potential you know subscribership for a, a Ring of Honor OTT service, and he, so he considered well, they do eight thousand to twelve thousand on pay per view probably. The U.S. New Japan World subscribers are about fifteen thousand five hundred out, you know, outside New Japan, so it's probably mostly U.S. Uh, if you look at the U.S. W Network subscribers, that's 1.165 million paid as of March. And so he, he, he took those things into account and gave a conservative estimate of about you know, 10,000 subscriptions, which if you charge, say, 12 bucks a month, uh, that turns into $1.44 million. Uh, the things you got to weigh that against are well, this is, it's going to cannibalize pay-per-view depending on what you put on it. It's going to cannibalize whatever they're doing with, with the flight app, which is basically a means for people to, you know, through the internet, order their pay-per-views. They, they, I think they still do these VODs where they basically they tape a house show and then you can watch it on VOD on their website. And they, and they probably still sell DVDs. And if you go to their website, you can still get like the best of Samoa Joe and stuff. And they also sell these these ring, ringside memberships, which give you access to a certain amount of VOD. And you get the TV show a little earlier, or at least you used to. Um, but yeah, it's like, well... Is all that stuff combined worth one point four four million dollars? Yeah, I guess. And I would charge more than twelve if it was me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would go okay. at least twenty. But um, that's just my take on things. Uh, I I think it's tough to say. You know, you look at something like their WrestleMania weekend and then say that's thirty five hundred, because I do think when you have a captive audience like that, you can you can sell you know pretty. The, the Young Bucks plus the Hardys was a pretty good draw for that kind of audience. And so there's a big question between can you do that somewhere else when you're not with a captive WrestleMania office from across the world. So I think the, the fact that New Japan has been able to do similar numbers, better numbers, you know, if you count it over two nights or similar numbers uh, on a different weekend, that's really great for them. Uh, and yeah. so it will be really fun to kind of watch and see. And it, it, the biggest question with all of this is can Ring of Honor maintain its own identity in kind of its reliance it's had on all these stars that are either non-exclusive or are actually shared talent with another promotion. Right. And I, and I think what's going on with New Japan and with Ring of Honor is, okay, so they, they just sold out. New Japan just sold out these two shows immediately. So that tells me that, well, there's there's a really passionate fan base out there who really wants to see New Japan come to the U.S. for the first time. And I would think most of the people coming in there are, are not going to be, you know, local to the LA area. You're going to have people flying in from all over the country or all over the world to see these first U.S. events uh, for New Japan. So it almost doesn't even matter where where in the U.S. they do it. Um, and I think the reason why you've got 
so much buzz around New Japan is because the product is excellent. And you have things like Wrestle Kingdom, which have become, you know, for the hardcore fans, have become this really big deal. You just had the six-star match with Kenny Omega and Okada that everybody loved. Um, but you compare that to Ring of Honor, among just a, a certain bubble of hardcore fans, I think Ring of Honor, sort of as you were saying, it doesn't have as strong of an identity. Uh, it doesn't even really have that many events that that many people talk about and, and put over it as a big deal. Uh, like I said, they have these VOD shows that they put out there, but they're, they're house shows. They, they tape TV, um, but the TV doesn't necessarily build to the pay-per-views. Um, there, there may be good matches you know, on, on the TV, but it doesn't necessarily get you excited, and it doesn't necessarily uh, you know, carry over storylines very well from week to week. Um, and then they do do their, I don't know, is it maybe you know, four to six pay-per-views uh, in the year. So it's it's not a company that I think has a strong identity or is building a lot of buzz. But like you know, Joe Lanza on this podcast network on, on Voice of Wrestling Flagship uh, Network has, has pointed out, there's a lot of fans who aren't you know the old Ring of Honor fans, probably that you and me are, um, who who grew up you know getting Ring of Honor on VHS or going to the shows you know, live in person. There's a lot of these Sinclair era fans now who aren't really well connected to the to the low-key Samoa Joe Daniel Bryan days and have caught on to Ring of Honor since they've been on, you know, whatever their local affiliate is. Absolutely. I have a I have a buddy who uh will watch it. He doesn't have cable, but he's older and so he watches, you know, over the air terrestrial television and we get Sinclair here. And so he'll sometimes want to talk to me about Sinclair. You know, did you see the Beer City Bruiser do this? And I'll just be like, no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and by the way, all this kind of goes against what I just said earlier, that they still draw on Chicago and New York despite not having any TV. So I, I guess what, what I should you know say is that they're kind of drawing from both. You can draw from the, the really organic, I guess, just Internet buzz. And then you can also draw from these, these people who have discovered it in more recent years through your you know, traditional television show. All right, well, we're getting to the end of our traditional radio show, uh, WrestleNomics <laughs> Radio. Uh, of course, we always end our show with our quick hits, uh, going back and forth to talk about interesting articles or ideas that have popped up that we didn't necessarily get time to talk about or we don't think is worth an entire segment. Uh, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to go first here. Uh, what what kind of ran, a, ran across your radar over the last two weeks here that you thought would be interesting to talk about? Well, in the last few hours, there, there was a comment from... Alberto Del Rio, where he did an interview with uh, Sports Illustrated, sort of talking about how you know, WWE is, you know, they're trying to make it into monopoly, which is what, what they're supposed to do, but they're trying to kind of destroy the competition. Um, I think he, he was talking about how uh, you know, wrestlers need to remember that this is a business and that, you know, uh, let's see here, what else does he say? That a lot of you know when, when wrestlers come to the WWE, they come off the indies and they may be making decent money, but because of just the hope that you're going to come to to the WWE and make even bigger money, people are taking all these pay cuts to NXT, and you know I don't know I don't know what's going on in Alberto Del Rio's life, but he's uh he's he's shooting on WWE fairly often. Yeah, and and really bringing up that question of will Paige survive all of this because uh, if they didn't have that. Mm -hmm that fighting with my family show with Steven Merchant and, and rock that movie that they're working on, 
you would really wonder whether they would keep her around just because she's been so closely connected with with ADR and her own behavior has been um, uh, all over the concerning, place. Concerning, yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I'm going to steal one of yours uh, because I don't have my own this week, which is the five-star wrestling in the UK offers CM Punk $1 million to join yeah. them for a tour. Uh, and this is being reported by The Sun. Uh, it sounds like five-star wrestling at least is willing to to um, do this. This, this of course, is the promotion that is running the 128-man tournament uh, right Sorry. now. Which, are you a member of the 128-man tournament? And if so, how could they book you? Uh not not yet. Um, if, if they would like to book me, they can uh, tweet me at at Brandon Thurston on Twitter, or they can tweet me even at at Farmer Thurst, Farmer underscore Thurston, which is the dedicated pro wrestler Twitter of mine. So you can get in touch with me today. And and uh, any time here, do you think you'll be facing CM Punk in one of the qualifiers? Um. Well, I, I did watch the the, the Mickey Gall fight, so uh, if uh, you know. If he uh, tries to, to, to shoot in on me, I'll, I'll just take him down and I'll uh, attack the year. <laughs> Go for the year. Punk, of course, yeah. is going to show up on, um, was it MTV The Challenge? Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to see him kind of getting out there and just living life and kind of doing more things that maybe aren't necessarily around fighting or wrestling, but rather going back to being a personality because uh, – I think, you know, why not use your fame and be able to be more than just, you know, a memory of, of a wrestling character who had to leave the, the company because he was frustrated with them or a fighter who did not, you know, necessarily get the uh, a contract commensurate with his skill. Uh, so I think it's cool that he's he's getting off. And I've never been the biggest CM Punk fan, so it, it says a lot for me to be like, yeah, go for it, man. I love the fact he's doing it for charity and he's doing it for, you know, his own, own brand. That's cool. Do you think he'll ever be back in WWE? I have a, a $100 bet with Brian Alvarez that he will, so I hope oh, so. Oh, that's right. I have okay. about seven and a half years left on that bet <laughs> till I have to pay off. So, uh, what, I, wait, what, what is the wager? The wager is that, that CM Punk will, will appear again in a right. WWE ring within 10 years of when he left. And, well, but what do you what do you win if you win the bet? I get the hundred dollars. Otherwise, $100. I have to pay Brian. So, what's nice okay. about it is all wow. all he has to do is show up for a WrestleMania where they need a main event. And, what if he uh, doesn't get in the ring? What what if it's a street fight like him and uh, Bret Hart? <laughs> so, yeah. Oh goodness, uh, I I think I would. What if it's a House of Horrors match? You know, I think it would go to Semper Vivi to uh, be the tiebreaker on this one as uh, okay. our judge advocate. That said, you still there? I'm still here. Okay, good. <laughs> I thought I lost you again. Uh-huh. Just that uh, was a hustle horrors moment there. Uh, uh-huh. Resolomics Radio is only available on the Voices of Network Voices. Let's try this again. <laughs> WrestleNomics Radio is available on the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. We are very graceful to Rich and Joe and all the other members of the VOW network who make it such a fun place to check and listen to podcasts. Uh, Brandon, what is on your podcast player these days? What are you listening to that is interesting to you? Well, of course, I, I subscribe to and listen to all the Fightful.com podcasts. They do post-Raw, post-Smackdown, post-Pay-Per-View podcasts, uh, as well as MMA and boxing podcasts. Uh, but other than that, I listen to... I listen pretty closely to Todd Martin and Bruce Mitchell PW Torch podcasts. Uh, I listen to the Voice Wrestling flagship 
shake them ropes. And that's that's what comes to mind right now. How about I, you? I listened to an interesting piece that Planet Money did all about India's demonetization, where basically the prime minister declared that all the bills under a certain size were would basically no longer be considered valid tender, and everyone had to turn them in within a certain period of time. And the history and the thoughts behind why they did that and what was it all about. And I think it just says a lot about kind of what a chaotic place India is in terms of an, uh, a booming economic market, what a large place it is, and what are some of the strange uh, pushes and pulls that go on in the political scene there. Uh, a, a person, a prime minister that Greg Khali did endorse at one point uh, and was they was photographed it for publicity purposes together. But um, it, it's a neat piece, so I, I, I advise people to check that out. Uh, most of my listening is either how did this get made, you know, movie podcast stuff, true crime stuff, or uh, economics or math and learning type stuff. So uh, not a lot of wrestling these days, but I have been enjoying on the voices of... So you have interests other than wrestling. <laughs> well, I, I've been enjoying on the voices of wrestling the um, the podcast that covers all the indie shows in Japan, like uh, all the other, the non-New Japan show, and where they did a whole thing on the Big Japan tournament. And uh, I, I like that kind of stuff. I love love learning my indie sleaze once again. So uh, more power to them. And again, if you ever want to contact us, email indeedwrestling at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Mukigana. If you want to see all my tweets about everything that has nothing to do with wrestling, like uh, Indian fiscal monetary policy, you can see it at Improv Mookie. And uh, the show is always up at voicesofwrestling.com. Brandon, what are your plugs? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-H-U-R-S-T-O-N. Uh, you can follow my wrestling Twitter, wrestler Twitter, at Farmer underscore Thurston. Uh, you can read all my articles on Fightful.com. Go in the feature section on Fightful.com and click on Brandon Howard. You'll see everything that I've written in reverse chronological order. I write exclusively for Fightful. Uh, they cover pro wrestling, MMA, and boxing news. They got podcasts, all that good stuff. And I, I'm a trainer. I run Grapplers. Well, I, I'm a trainer at Grapplers Anonymous in Lackawanna, New York, just outside Buffalo, New York. And uh, I'm going I'm to wrestle on Friday and Saturday for IWF in Brockport, New York, and then in my home, North Carolina, New York, for Empire State Wrestling. So check it out. Do you run into a lot of fans of fans of our podcast <laughs> at the show? <laughs> All the time. They're they're asking. They're demanding uh, WrestleNomics. Uh, t-shirts so that they can spread the word of WrestleNomics and educate their neighbors about how the wrestling economy works and how important it is. Somebody suggested a, a Excel is your friend uh, oh. shirt to parody Dave's. Among others. Yeah, among others. Oh, oh I see. Excel, I just like, oh, really? Greed is your friend, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Dave. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will talk to you later. Have a great night, everybody. Dive. In a world of one million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.